Welcome to Wonks and War Rooms, where Polcom Theory meets on-the-ground strategy. I'm your host, Elizabeth Dubois, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Ottawa. Today, we're talking about echo chambers and filter bubbles, and I'm going to have my guest, Addy, introduce himself. Uh, hi, Elizabeth. Uh, my name's Addy. I uh, am a lawyer by trade. Uh, I live now here in Fredericton, working for the Canadian Union of Public Employees, um, and I uh, used to live in Ottawa, and then before that, in Alberta. Um, I, uh, I suppose I, I used to work also for the NDP at one point, And so, uh, that got me some campaign experience and, and I, I continue to be involved in sort of electoral campaigns and, uh, I'm excited to talk with you. Awesome. Welcome. Have you heard of the idea of an echo chamber before? I think, I think more and more people have been talking about it. So I have heard about, uh, echo chambers, maybe, I have heard about echo chambers because people in my echo chamber talk about echo chambers. There you go. So it's this theory that came out of political communication research that was observing that we're in this high choice media environment where people have all of these different sources and channels to get political information and news. And the, the metaphor comes from this idea that when you have all these choices, you can choose to surround yourself by information that confirms your existing beliefs. And so then basically everything you send out sort of echoes off the walls and comes right back to you. And the theory kind of plays into a bunch of democratic fears of fragmentation of society. And we end up worried that maybe we're all in our own little echo chambers and completely unaware of what's happening out in the rest of the world. Does that track with your understanding of echo chamber? I suppose so. Yeah. I mean, I have a more layperson understanding of echo chambers being sort of, you know, preaching to the choir type of idea and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that sounds like what I've gleaned over the uh, over the last uh, few years of this conversation sort of happening in, in the world of pundits and politics. Yeah. Do you feel like you're in an echo chamber? I think I think I might be. Yeah. I mean, I think lots of folks, I think when you do political work, um, or campaign working, even if it's not political, but it's, you know, what, whatever kind of uh, community organizing or anything like that, you, um, I think you can often end up in an echo chamber. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't been using Facebook as much. Uh, and I know that Facebook is, uh, you know, very much at the center of this conversation about echo chambers, but Twitter, which I unfortunately do continue to use quite a bit, uh, seems to also exhibit some of those traits, right? I mean, I'd get, I'll get these, these, pings from from twitter and my email saying uh hey this person tweeted you might be interested it feels like you know twitter's figured out what i'm interested in and tells me when somebody i whose whose views i i you know might agree with has said something and i i go over there like a lemming and i look at their their tweet and i'm like yeah i i do like that tweet and then i hit like and then sure enough twitter knows to email me the next time if i haven't logged on yet to, to remind me to go back and check what this person has tweeted. So, I mean, I think we all sort of end up in, in these echo chambers uh, online. But I think what's particularly fascinating for me about echo chambers is that we are in echo chambers offline too, right? I mean, this isn't a, I think we like to chalk it all up to algorithms on social media and so on. But I mean, I feel like this has been something that, that our communities have struggled with um, for the entire existence of communities, right? You find the cause that you want to work on and you hang out with the people that also want to work on it with you. And before you know it, you're only hanging out with people you agree with or people that generally agree with you. And, uh, and then you're kind of in an echo chamber. And, and uh, I know that when we host events, for example, on whatever political issue, whether it's 
um, you know, refugee rights or human rights generally, the people that show up to those events, you often see the same faces in the crowd and you often talk to the same people over and over again and you start to wonder whether you've just been preaching to the choir or, or whether you're doing something wrong and whether the people that you want to hear your message are even hearing it, the, the so-called persuadables. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and, and really important observation about the kinds of communities we end up being part of and and who we end up hanging out with and who we end up engaging in discussion with, right? We know that even outside of kind of political communication, social science generally has observed for many, many years this idea called homophily where we all hang out with people who are kind of like us. We tend to have friends who are a similar socioeconomic status. They tend to have grown up in similar areas. They have similar education levels. They like the same kinds of things. You know, you make friends by going to different events. The fact that you both chose to go to the event in the first place puts you in some sort of kind of similarity uh, spot. And so we end up in these social circles that are very similar to us, which makes it harder to get out and see different perspectives because everybody kind of has a similar one. We also know then when you go the next step further into being actively politically engaged, whether it's through a specific political party or based on a particular issue you care about, then you're kind of going even a step further into an area where you're around a bunch of people who they're already bought into the this thing matters argument, right? Like you don't need to spend time convincing them that climate change is a major issue because you guys all showed up to the climate rally together, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that is a, you know, a social phenomenon that has existed independent of what our media environment looks like. The echo chamber argument sort of builds off of that idea that we like to be around people who are like us because it's comfortable. We like yeah. information that confirms our existing beliefs because it's comfortable. And it goes on to say, you know, and then we choose to consume information that fits with that sense of community that you're building. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. I, uh, I, you know, a, a, an example that comes to mind from sort of uh, real real world campaign work um, is the Sanctuary City campaign we ran in Ottawa in 2017. We'd had very briefly the Sanctuary City campaign essentially asks municipalities to commit to ensuring that uh, whatever services they provide and whatever services they fund will never share information that they get from people who are living in the community without status, without immigration status or with precarious immigration status with border enforcement. So in other words, you can go to a, a food bank and you won't be asked for ID. Um, and if you are asked for ID, that information won't be used to uh, alert CBSA of your presence, that kind of thing. Uh, and also as it relates to police, so that police should be banned from talking to CBSA. And so we were trying to get this this uh, um, campaign going in, in Ottawa and it was fairly, you know, we had a lot of success in sort of mobilizing the community and we had 30 community leaders, experts come to, to the to city council and provide deputations and, and, and really sort of speak to the, um, the realities of folks who are living without status uh, in Ottawa. Uh, and, uh, uh, and it was, it was, it was interesting because there were 30 people speaking for it. And then there was this one person who came to speak uh, against it. And, and this, it turned out that this, you know, this, this one person was like a young guy, like must like maybe like just first or second year university aged 
came in and, and essentially just sort of, you know, said that he didn't really like the idea. Uh, he thought it was a slap in the face of, of, uh, of the work that Ottawa's already been doing, that kind of thing. And, and, it, and, and it was, it was not, you know, the, this kid hadn't really, uh, didn't really have any expertise on the issue. We just sort of came to, uh, offer his uh, opinion as as members of Ottawa uh, citizens of Ottawa have a right to do. But what was what was interesting to me was that there was a radio station present covering the story along with some other media outlets, and all of the media outlets that covered it effectively said, you know, lots of people showed up. All of these experts they took quotes and so on. But this one radio station made a point to only interview that one guy. And this is a right-wing, you know, radio station in in uh, in Ottawa, uh, and and I and I think that that sort of is a, a very real example of of this not being you know solely a social media problem, right? Like this is uh, traditional media does this all the time, like seeks out viewpoints for their audience uh, to reinforce what their audience wants to hear. Uh, and the tragedy of the whole thing, you know, of course, was that we were in the end unsuccessful because there wasn't political courage to to take that step and and institute those policies protecting people who were living in Ottawa without status. But in that particular instance, what was kind of tragic was that that kid, it turned out, was an intern in one of the councillor's offices um, who was who was opposed to the campaign, and he had he had essentially planted this person to make that intervention. But that wasn't mentioned on, on the, in the coverage that that radio station gave uh, that student, um, and it was just, you know I, I think that that really sort of underlines um, how we uh, have been living in these echo chambers all this time anyway, right? Yeah, and so you know we rely on on journalism to help us become more informed about our political systems because not everybody can be at city hall all of the time observing what's happening. And right. so, you know, what you've just described of this sort of partisan approach to selecting who's interviewed and, and selecting which bits of information to share that plays into the echo chamber idea. But I do want to kind of make sure that we're teasing out a little bit, the difference between the choices that are being made on the side of the media producers and the disseminators of the information. So there we could think of the radio station and the journalist who was doing that interview. We could think of Facebook and Twitter as companies that host information and help disseminate it. And they have algorithms that curate the information that gets disseminated. So there's a bunch of choices on that side, but the echo chamber theory really focuses on the choices that we as consumers of information are making us choosing to listen to that radio station and only that radio station uh, and having that be, you know, confirming our existing beliefs and ideas and feeling nice and comfy. That is one of the fears of the echo chamber. The other fear is you might end up having people who are like, you know what, I think politics is too stressful or it's dumb or it's boring or whatever, and just choosing not to pay attention to political information at all. And so then we have this fear of a growing gap between the people who are super informed and the people who aren't informed at all, which there's a concern in the context of a democracy where you ideally have informed voters going and making decisions on election day. Yeah, 100%. I, I think that's a really good point. Uh, this is, after all, these these companies are demand-driven, right? I mean, they're mm-hmm. they're trying to do, uh, even even the whether it's a radio station or whether it's Facebook, 
Um, in the end, it depends on what the consumers want. And uh, when you make consumers feel comfortable, I suppose you want more comfort. Completely. You know, we started out the conversation, you were talking about Facebook and Twitter, kind of as if each of those might be their own echo chamber. And it plays into those sets of decisions that those companies are making. They have designed their whole business around the idea of we can take all of this massive amount of information that's out in the world and we can curate it for you. We can give you what matters most to you. Right. And they figure out what matters most to you by looking at what you've liked and what you've shared and what you've clicked on and what you've commented on and what people who are like you, whether it's your friends uh, on that network, your connections there, or other people that have similar habits to you on their platform, what they've been liking and sharing and clicking on and commenting. Right. And so all of that helps promote their business model because the more you like the content from that site, the longer you spend there, the more advertising dollars you make them. Right. Yeah. I, I think that makes, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, you, we, we've all had that moment where, you know, you are talking to somebody about buying something and then the next minute you get a targeted ad from your, on your Instagram for that thing. Um, and it creeps you out a little bit. And, and I mean, I, I'm sure there's there, I don't know the, I don't know how that really works, but my guess is your phone probably isn't listening to you. It's just that they've gotten so good at, at predicting what you want that sometimes that happens. Yeah. And the little kinds of cues that you send out to the world as you're navigating the internet, you don't even realize how they're being integrated into what the various platforms you use on the internet are then delivering to you. Right. Um, But this actually brings up an important distinction between the echo chamber idea and another super common concern we have around filter bubbles. (laughs) So filter bubbles are algorithmically driven. It's again a metaphor for describing when we end up in a context where the information that surrounds us is all kind of confirming our existing ideas and beliefs. And what happens is social media platforms, search engines, and other digital tools, they develop these algorithms to filter information for us, information that we're going to like, click, comment, share. And they do so in a way that creates a bit of a bubble. You end up only seeing things that are all very similar to what you've already seen. And so if you have liked a lot of cat videos, you're going to get a lot of cat videos. If you've liked a lot of like extreme, exciting sports, you're going to like end up with all of those kinds of videos. If you are a political wonk and you are super into reading about the minutia of parliamentary procedure, then maybe you're going to get some parliamentary procedure stuff showing up in your feed. I think that makes that makes sense. I I suppose uh, filter bubbles create echo chambers is, is, is essentially... What happens, I suppose, eh? Yeah, so they can, but they don't necessarily have to, right? So we could be we could be very much in a filter bubble on Facebook, but then make choices in our media habits to sort of counteract that bubble effect and then end up, you know, very intentionally looking at a bunch of different sources of information from a different set of perspectives than we're normally used to and we might draw from radio and print news and online discussion forums and uh, Twitter and with all of those different sources of information coming in 
from different perspectives, then we actually avoid getting stuck in an echo chamber, even though on that one platform, Facebook, we are seeing just the cat videos over and over again. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I think we, uh, for a lot of, for a lot of sort of campaigning organizations, um, whether it's sort of Amnesty International, uh, which is doing human rights-based campaigning, or whether it's the NDP, which does political partisan campaigning, I mean, this, this is a, this is both an opportunity and a, and a hurdle, right? I mean, you try to, uh, you try to penetrate these filter bubbles in order to get your message out to people who you think you want to, who you think might be susceptible to, to your message or people that you want to convince of something. But part of the time, the challenge is just penetrating that filter bubble and getting your, getting your message in so that they can even see it. Yeah. So what, what kind of strategies can be used for that? Have you seen any that are successful? Well, I, I, I think that um, this is an ongoing debate, right? I mean, I think that human rights organizations, which uh, do a lot of online campaigning, um, have had a bit of a renaissance in, in campaign strategy, right? So going from crisis-based messaging to hope-based messaging in, in the hope, I suppose, that that hope-based messaging will penetrate some of these these bubbles. Because in the end, people, people want to be people want to feel safe and people want to be comfortable. And I think we, certainly for campaigning organizations, research has shown that that crisis-based messaging is not effective in trying to win people over, right? And, and there's this whole idea about hope-based communications um, that a guy named Thomas Coombs has been really spearheading, former Amnesty uh, campaigner. The idea that uh, in, in order to sort of get folks thinking about these issues, um, we have to we have to pitch it to them in sort of solidarity-based, hope-based uh, messages, so that fe- folks feel like they're on, they're you know that they're that they uh, can resonate with the value that you're that you're uh, that you're sharing. So the idea that it's values that matter, not so much the news, right? Like mm-hmm. saying saying to somebody that rights are being violated somewhere, as opposed to here's a victory of of uh, uh, of a human right. Um, there's a different emotional reaction that we should be talking about solutions, not the problems. You know, the idea that we should be talking about opportunities and not threats. And right. um, I think, I think that's a, that's an ongoing conversation to see whether it's going to be successful or not. Uh, but I think lots of folks pushing that idea of hope-based communications and human rights campaigning, um, I suppose are hopeful that that's the kind of campaigns that'll penetrate um, some of this, some of this stuff. And, and, and to be honest, that's kind of what, um, kind of what the right wing has been doing, right? Like you have Ontario proud, for example, which start, which will hook you in with these cat videos or whatever. And then, and then suddenly boom, here's a really partisan message about how Doug Ford's the person who's going to save you from the evil liberal elite. And, and you've been reeled in by this, this positive kind of cutesy, uh, photos. How beautiful are these Niagara peaches? Yeah, exactly. All of a sudden now you're part of that ecosystem. And I think what we have, I, I don't know if, if uh, this is the prevailing view or not, but I certainly think that we can't really, we can't really undo the media landscape, but we have to work with what we've got now. And um, I think the fact that it exists the way that it does means we have to rethink the way we try to get our message out. And I, I do think that uh, people want to be in solidarity with one another. I think people in the end want to feel like they're part of, of a community. Um, and that and- kind of like that connects back to where we started with the idea of like, well, echo chambers 
we're constantly in them because we like to be parts of communities. And so it's interesting that sort of the response to getting people out of out of an echo chamber or or a filter bubble, depending on whether or not we're talking about kind of the overarching media system or the specific algorithmic approach within one platform, you know, like the, the way to get them out of one that uh, is not yours is to try and reel them into yours. Right. Yeah. I wanted to kind of also flip this a little bit because we've been talking about, you know, the, the approaches on a communication style level and the, and the emotion level. I wanted to point out though, that one of the components here, particularly for the filter bubble idea, which is that algorithmically driven one, a lot of what information spreads is actually very dependent on how the tech company has designed their algorithms for prioritizing content on people's feeds. And it's interesting in this context because emotion is one of the main things that we've seen um, is a driver of likes and clicks and shares. And we know that things that are extreme and unbelievable and shocking uh, and elicit a strong emotion are things that get prioritized by most of the major social media companies right now uh, in, in the way they've designed their algorithms for us. You know, they're, they're trying to respond to this to a certain extent by tweaking the algorithm so it's not as easy to, to game them. But at the end of the day, the things that make us feel are the things that end up being spread because of the way the algorithms have been designed to respond to us. And so there's an interesting question about the extent to which fear is a better motivator of online action and by action i mean like clicking a button um versus hope right i mean i think that's a really good point and the fact that the more action and more more clicking that happens the higher your revenue goes right for for these for these companies and so there's an incentive to 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 kind of continue to foster a system or an algorithmic system that incentivizes sort of fear as an emotion so that you just continue watching or you continue seeing things that you continue clicking on things. And Yeah. And, and I think it's also important to then bring us back out to, you know, even if we got rid of those in, individual filter bubbles that are algorithmically driven on specific platforms, we still have a media environment where people are choosing from a lot of different sources of information people will still be able to choose only things that fit with their narrow view if that's what they want to do. No matter whether or not we get rid of the the filter bubble component, there's still the human choice component. And, um, you know, you could get rid of individual platforms potentially. I think it would be hard, but potentially. Yeah. Um, you can't really get rid of the, the phenomenon. Right. Like, and the vast diversity of information that exists because we have the internet. Uh, And, and there's probably some pretty strong arguments for, we kind of need the internet for a lot of life. Yeah, Yeah. true. Right. And there's this weird social function that these media companies provide, which is in, in, in this, in this filtering of, of information to suit your, your taste. There's also the filtering that is actually in some ways helpful, right. To drown out a lot of the noise and, and, kind of distill it to distill all of that information to something that you want to, you want to consume. And in, in some ways that's a bit of a, yeah, that's, that's a bit, that's kind of helpful, right? Like otherwise we'd all just be drowning in all of the information that, that exists. Oh yeah. It's hugely helpful. We need 
search engines and and these social media companies, which essentially are search engines just for our social interactions, like we need them. They are very useful to us in in our daily lives. But yeah, there's questions about how much they influence what information we have access to. And and I think also a, an important question is how transparent is the process of filtering that they are doing, right? We need to know how it's happening so that we can be informed enough to choose to change our media diets in a way that, you know, might counteract a filter bubble if we recognize we're in a filter bubble because Twitter keeps giving us the same stuff and we keep going back and and taking it, right? If if we notice that and recognize that and understand how Twitter's doing that, then we can say, okay, I'm going to make these other choices for the other kinds of sources of political information I have uh, to help balance it out. Yeah. All right. I have one last question for you. Uh, it's a little quiz. Oh, I am wondering if you can tell me the difference between echo chambers and filter bubbles. Oh my God. Are you serious? <laughs> you can do it. I believe in you. <laughs> um, well, uh, I think what I, I, I think what I understood, uh, is that echo chambers, the, one of the main differences between filter bubbles and, and, uh, um, uh, echo chambers is that filter bubbles has to do with algorithms and, and, and sort of the idea that there are these, um, uh, these mechanical things that have been put in place that result in, in filtering information that you see. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose uh, um, echo chambers uh, can be a result of filter bubbles. It doesn't have to be, but it is the idea that you end up in, in environments with people who are similarly minded uh, or, or have uh, similar ideas to you and, and, uh, and you end up hearing what you want to hear as a result of it. That was great. Well done. Awesome. Great. I'm glad. Did I pass? You passed. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Okay. Very well done. (laughs) Well, that was our episode on echo chambers and filter bubbles. Thanks for joining. If you'd like more information about any of the theories or concepts we talked about today, go ahead and check the show notes or head over to paulcomtech.ca. 